Hi, everybody, and welcome to No Country. My name is J. David Osborne, and that is Chris Sackmissum. Chris, how are you doing this evening? David, I'm, I'm really well, and I, I have an opening quotation to share because I can't not share it. All right. This is from the uh, movie Total Recall, as many people will know, based on the Philip K. Dick story, We Can Remember It For You Wholesale. I'm not sure if, if uh, the wonderful PKD has ever gotten really the treatment in films that he deserves. He was a former neighbor of mine in Berkeley, as I may have mentioned, long before I knew that he was uh, famous and long before he was famous. He lived on Francisco Street, and one day his entire porch collapsed because of returned manuscripts. So writer friends who feel discouraged Remember that your whole porch hasn't <laughs> collapsed under the, the strength of rejections. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, um, in those days, butcher shops used to sell horse meat, and uh, it was designed as you know, or intended as, as pet food. But a lot of people actually ate it, mm-hmm. and poor people certainly did. And uh, Philip K. Dick in those days was eating horse meat. So horse lover fat. Yeah, look, you know, exactly. I think we should all be humble. Some, so many of our heroes are not Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk and uh, came up the hard way and, and, and even maybe left this life in, in, in hard circumstances. But here's a great line from the Total Recall movie uh, directed by Paul Verhoeven. Do you think we're going to give it all away because some lazy mutants want to rule the planet? That's the Ronnie Cox villain character. And I just love that. Do you think we're going to give it all away because some lazy mutants want to rule the planet? I'm afraid that's a little bit uh, prescient and uh, timely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, as a lazy mutant, I, I, find, I see a lot of value in, in that quote myself. I'm... <laughs> No, I've had an a incredible, productive week. Finally starting to get my footing when it comes to uh, doing the dad thing and also uh, getting my editing work done and getting my creative work done. I was telling you off mic that I've been reading through your textbook and uh, everybody who's listening to this should go and buy it because I think that it is uh, destined to be a creative writing classic. Nothing has gotten me and I've, I think I've read most of the creative writing books that are worth reading Bird by Bird by Ed Lamott The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield On Writing by Stephen King on and on and on I've read all of them and this one by far has gotten the gears turning like nothing nothing else so it's available for pre-order now and you should buy it I really appreciate that, David. It's been a long, strange trip, as uh, the Grateful Dead uh, would say. It, it really comes out of an enormous amount of, of my own personal writing practice and, and thinking practice, and frankly, lost practice. You know, those moments where you're really just lost, both personally and artistically. But some really good teaching around the world, which where I've really tried this out, and I've I've had the benefit of translators in Indonesia and China. Um, I've I've been in, in weird parts of Africa, 
And I, I really, I really sort of acid tested this stuff, but it always really matters to me. You know, you're only as good as the next student you teach and the next reader you find. You know, that's mm-hmm. really the bottom line. So if it's meant something to you, that means a great deal because I have an enormous amount of intellectual and artistic respect for your perspective and your search, your journey, your, your, your trial of soul. And that's what it's about. And I, I, I think that I really did, you know, I, I, you know if you're going to get it to bat in, you know, for a major publisher, well... Swing for the fences, mm-hmm, you know. Mm-hmm, You're not mm-hmm. trying to get a base hit. There's often times in life where a base hit is good enough. Just get on first base, you know, mm-hmm. and maybe try to steal second. But if you get a chance, any of us, you know, with a major world publisher or, you know, a major, you know, Hollywood producer or whatever the opportunity, whatever the arena, if you really get in the door for a moment, then swing for the fences, go for the knockout, go for the fireworks, you know, light it up. So I don't even thank know. you very much. You're welcome. I don't know how you would do a, a follow-up or a sequel to this because so much of it is on the page. I mean, every line is something that you can sit and think about for a while, and it's full of quotes and, you know, um, you know, t- changes in, in perspective, um, so anyway, I, I won't. I won't. Go, I'll go on more about that as the book gets closer to being released. Uh, February March. is it? March. Okay. Yeah, we're we're due for March internationally. All of the English speaking, uh, you know, world. Uh, but it's available for pre order on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Powell's, all of the usual channels. It, it's a real tribute to Rutledge's. Uh, marketing efforts that they're reaching out to get you know what what is an effectively an academic textbook mm-hmm. out into the popular publishing world and i'm very grateful for that um but i do have a sequel in mind and i um and on that basis uh, I, i'm negotiating a, a new relationship with an agent and kind of relaunching the whole career so hmm. uh there's a lot more in the tank because you know once I mean, the real subject of the book is, is, is harnessing inspiration. So once you do harness inspiration, you find there is the magical ability to, to recreate it, mm-hmm. you know? And, mm-hmm. and that is a trick. That is a real trick. It's, um, it's interesting that you say that because the work that I'm doing right now, I was telling you earlier about how I've felt somewhat blocked for the past five or six years uh, only released one book in that time. And when the the block was lifted, by mostly by reading this, this book, but also when I approached it, uh, inspired not just by the content of the book, but the style itself, um, and this kind of go for broke, swing for the fences attitude, I started, you know, thinking to myself, this book that I'm working on now is the only book that that I'm ever going to write. And of course that's not true because I have, I, I want to be prolific. I want to put, you know, a lot of stuff out into the world. But once I adopted that attitude that this book is the book and I started every single line trying to pack it full of physicality and, and you know, and depth, um, 
that's the only time it actually started working. Once I stopped rationing it, like I was a, you know, a peasant in Soviet Russia in a breadline, you know, and just said, you know what? No, I'm not going to live in a, this kind of uh, scarcity economy of the mind. That's when it started taking off. You know, there's an interesting analog here, which is a little strange, but I think it's very relevant. Uh, the wonderful Marlena Dietrich, who is kind of a star of a past that we can only kind of imagine again. And there's no one of that level of class, you know, really today. She was once asked, why are you so attractive? And she said, because I'm not necessarily beautiful or certainly not any more beautiful than many women. But she said, I have a gift for making every man and woman that I speak to feel as if they're the only person in the room. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's that focus on the project of today which is exactly what Picasso and Miles Davis also said. There is only today's music. There's only today's art, mm -hmm. you know? And if you're focused on that, well, then I think you've got a good start on tomorrow's work, you know? Mm -hmm. So that, I mean, the people who have been really prolific in it, in a legitimate sense, I think, uh, or any sense, actually. I mean, you can look at some of the Victorian writers who are no longer read, who were enormously prolific. Um, they just put one foot in front of the other and believed in what they were doing and committed entirely to not just uh, today, but the hour, you know, the mm -hmm. hour. Mm -hmm. the, mm -hmm. You know, what are we going to do this hour? But mm -hmm. what's going to uh, what are we going to accomplish this hour? And if you free yourself to do that, I think some amazing creative things can happen. You know, we need to make uh, we we spoke in the last episode about the invention of time, and I think we need to remember that we did invent time, and we have some control over time. You know, all of us individually. Mm -hmm. You know, absolutely. No, absolutely. I would like to go into the week in doom, but before we do that, is my creative challenge going to be one that's at the end of the show, or am I getting that now? Now you've got to get that now because okay. it's complicated. Okay. Um, so for people new to uh, the show, David has an ongoing challenge of five words that I uh, give him. He has a choice of two words to integrate into the discourse over the hour plus segment. And he has to do that as subtly and legitimately as possible. He's done an amazing job with this challenge. I encourage people to try to do this. Have some words that you need to use in all of your social obligations. It's a fun secret agent sort of challenge. It's just a little joke that you're having with yourself. And you just try to insert things in a way that, that makes sense and connect with your environment. And if you do this as a discipline, you, you'll sharpen your mind, you'll awaken your friends' minds, and you'll have a little bit of private fun. 
Okay, so David always has these challenges. He, I've, been, I've given him five words. He's got to introduce two of those into the discourse. But here is the imaginative challenge for our Oklahoman genius. Let's go. This is about genius. This is about genius. This is about one of the great 19th century issues of what is genius. Imagine if every human on the planet suddenly experienced a dramatic enhancement of intelligence capability for reference on the order of 25 of our conventional so-called IQ points. Mr. Osborne, your challenge is to name a few major outcomes or if you choose to describe an overall arc scenario that might develop. Any questions? No, I got it. Well, I don't right. have it, but I get what you no, said. No, I, okay, you get what I'm saying. That's all right. Saying. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh -huh. okay. So the idea for listeners here is that we're always giving David a challenge that he has to run in parallel. He has to run the system, his own intelligence system, in parallel to ongoing participation in the discourse while running this imaginative challenge, which he will deliver at the end. All right, fantastic. I'll look forward to hopefully getting this done. Now we'll get it done. The Week in Doom. Let's talk The Week in Doom. Chris, hit me, hit me. Tonight we are going to talk about inflation. Now, since last October, inflation has risen 6.2%. And people are worried about it. There was a notorious now segment on Fox News in which a family of 13, so 11 children, was lamenting the fact that they buy 12 gallons of milk every week. And the price of milk has gone up from 198 to 279 which can get a little pricey over time. And it was uh, made fun of because having 11 children is not a relatable scenario for most people on the planet. Uh, I'm not one to judge about how people want to set up their family, but I think it's fair to say cautiously that 11 children's a bit much. But the inflation issue has been picked up by uh, several outlets, including one that I have an excerpt from here from The Intercept, which is ostensibly a left socialist magazine and has been spun into a good thing as is evidenced by the title here at the intercept inflation is good for you written by john schwartz <laughs> and it has the subheader don't panic over milk prices inflation is bad for the one percent but helps out almost everyone else Oh, now, do tell. Now I I'd love to hear that. <laughs> I won't go into the entire article, but I'm happy to summarize big parts of it. Mr. Schwartz, this esteemed journalist, begins by putting things in perspective. So he says, all right, 6.2% over a year. That means that if you paid $10 for something last October, it's 1062 this October. And to that, 
I'm going to editorialize here. Uh, to that, I say, yeah, and that's a problem. That's a real problem. Because if people are spending $1,000 a month, let's say, on uh, goods, okay, gas, food, maybe not housing, although housing does have a correlation to inflation, right? Well, now they're spending an extra 62 bucks a month, and people who are going paycheck to paycheck will take a big hit by that $62 a month increase. Some people were just towing the line as it was. So people essentially have to make cuts, and we'll get to that here a little bit later. Schwartz's overall point in this article is that when inflation happens, debt loses its value. And this is true. This is true to a certain extent, right? So all that debt that's been taken out, say um, he gives the figure here that the average American has $65,000 in debt. Well, now that 65000 is worth less than it was when they took the loan out. So it's actually a good thing. So that's bullshit, right? That's not, it's not good because he makes the point here that workers in America have seen a 5.8% hike in raises. Uh, I don't know if he's good at math, but that's actually still under the inflation uh, number for the year. So his idea is that, you, okay, you have more money now to spend. You're, so that means that you can get rid of your debt faster because the value of that debt is lower. This, to me, uh, seems to be really ignoring the elephant in the room here, that on a day-to-day -day basis, people need goods and services to be affordable. And I just, I don't think guys like this, who unfortunately, in my opinion, seem really out of touch, understand that things costing more does not help working class people. There's nothing good about inflation. In fact, we want deflationary currency, which has been, there's been some promise to that shown in things like cryptocurrency and what have you, which I won't get into. But this was my first week in doom because there's something going on in the country right now, not just with inflation, but with people's attitudes in general, uh, whether it's with the, the Kyle Rittenhouse trial or, um, you know, social issues that continue to rage on every morning. I don't understand how these Twitter warriors wake up every morning ready to fight in the manner that they do. Um, but a good point here would be to pivot to my second article here, which is from Bloomberg. It's in the Bloomberg opinion section of their economics uh, wing. And it says, Americans need to learn to live more like Europeans. Supply chain shortages are constraining U.S. consumers' endless appetite for buying whatever they want, whenever they want. It's about time. The gist of this article is pretty much summed up in that. But the idea is, is that if when you live in Europe, I suppose, they don't have the access to the extra stuff that we have here in America. So the writer talks a bit about how the average American family has three TVs. Uh, the square footage of their house is bigger, even though their family size is getting smaller. There's just all this excess, excess, excess consumerism. So this inflation is putting a much needed stop on that overconsumption and forcing us to live a little bit more humbly. He even ends the article with, I think, a very snide suggestion that uh, Americans can learn to be more like Europeans and, I don't know, maybe go out and ride a bike 
So I'm interested to get your thoughts on this, Chris, because to me this seems a lot like a, a let them eat cake scenario uh, where these writers who are, if I'm being generous or out of touch, but if I'm using my David conspiracy brain, are actually carrying water for organizations like the World Economic Forum, which are notorious for saying you will own nothing and you will be happy. Um, it seems to me that there's a lot of heavy lifting and work being done for these organizations that are moving us very quickly into a world that on its surface is meant to do things like combat inequality and climate change, but are, is actually a smokescreen for greater control and surveillance. So I'll stop there and, and get your thoughts on this. Okay, well, uh, that was a really good, interesting um, rap, you know, and I have a lot of thoughts on that. My, my first thought is, you know, if I had my druthers, I love that word druthers. I do too. Um, it's a great sort of American heartland sort of word, uh, and we should bring it back. Uh, you know, I, I would actually be speaking to you from the Solomon Islands, of which I am a citizen, and I'd live in a kind of uh, homemade shack, and I'd have negotiated with my estranged son, who I would probably have to have st struck a balance with to help me, and I'd have a big fucking satellite dish. Um, but I, I would, you know, I would be part of the Oklahoman family uh, because of, of great long-term, long-term human technology, you know, not just recent technology. The idea of a satellite dish was a long time in the making, but I, I would be reaching out to you from that part of the world outside of America because I'm very, I'm growing very, very frustrated, um, as many people are, with American society. Um, it doesn't amount to a culture. I'm not going to use that word about America anymore. There are no culture wars. Uh, we're not capable of that. We we've lost the. Uh, we're, we're ratcheted down to the point where culture does not uh, really <laughs> something that we're capable of. Um, but I, I think the issue that really is going on with inflation and so many things today is that, you know, there's a total democratic failure. Uh, you know, I mean, really, people are just... Joe Biden's uh, polling ratings are, are just as low as they possibly can go. He's the oldest white male president in a time when we're all about wokeism. You know, everything's got to be woke. Uh, or, you know, I mean, really, which is just hatred of, of, of white people. Uh, that's really the code. Um, but, I mean, his, his ratings are so low. Everything is in the tank. And liberals just don't have anywhere to turn. They, they can't admit that the whole project is failing terribly. And it's failing at the gas pumps. I mean, the gas pumps are the, the lifeblood of America. You go to the gas pumps anywhere, and when it creeps over $4 a gallon, I'm sorry, that president is out. And all of the people who have supported that president are going to be out. The, 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 the 2022 midterm elections are going to sort out so much of this and a lot of our problem is we're just not able to talk about these things because for fear of 
you know, Twitter reprisal and cancellation. And no, you have to support Joe no matter what, even if he's in Delaware and senile and doesn't care about the border crisis, doesn't care about Afghanistan, doesn't care about inflation, doesn't care about any of the major issues that are affecting American people. But inflation is going to blow up. And, you know, for those people who are old enough to remember the Jimmy Carter thing, I like Jimmy Carter. I thought he was a decent man. I think history has proved he was a, a good soul, you know, for a politician and a, and a millionaire, billionaire, pie, you know, not billionaire, but millionaire peanut farmer. Um, I liked Billy a lot. I, I'm sorry that Billy, the alcoholic brother, you know, I, I liked that he was included in the mix. A Billy Beer. I have a Billy Beer can, which is actually worth a fair bit of money. Uh, well, not really, like 75 bucks now. Um, but I think that what's happening is that we've forgotten Main Street. You know, come on, man, there is a Main Street. And in Main Street is an idea that is bigger. I mean, Europe doesn't have a Main Street idea. America does. And Main Street is also my condo community. It's all about people, you know, your age having babies and, you know, black people having babies and old people dying and looking and people my age looking after, you know, aged parents. And I mean, I couldn't live in a more diverse, demographically true community than I am right now. And I got to tell you, the, the whole thing works on the basis of well, how do we just afford day-to-day -day life? I mean, if chicken goes up to from six fifty to eleven dollars, chicken, you know, come on, chicken. Mm -hmm. We're not talking about steak. We're talking about chicken. You know, if gas goes over four dollars, you know, I'm all in favor of us moving culturally beyond petroleum products, of course. But we're not there in the moment, you know? We're not there in the moment. Our cars, our vehicles still depend on that technology, mostly. So I think that what's happened is that we've abandoned where people are really living in the moment. And our politicians and our corporate leaders who are reaping enormous benefits are just raping the shit out of us. And, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, and I, but I wouldn't, I, we're not surprised that corporate people are doing that. We're not surprised about that. I think we should be more surprised and more horrified that our politicians, particularly in my view, the Democrat Party, I'm a lifelong Democrat voter. I've now moved to being an independent, and I'm very proud. To, to say that, well, I'm not proud, I'm just, it's a fact. I just can't support a program of ignorance, as in ignoring basic people living their lives, trying to raise families. I just don't get that anymore. I think inflation is a real evil. It's a completely contrived evil. Um, and I think that the American politicians are currently in play, and I think we should level the finger 
at the Democratic Party in regards to this because they're in the in the chair right now, and Kamala Harris says, "Yeah, you know, the worst ranking vice president of all time has said yes. Inflation is a heavy burden for families to bear." Well, you know, my attitude to that is, "Fuck you." Mm-hmm. Yeah. What a terrible. She was a terrible attorney general. She was a terrible district attorney. She's an evil person. And if she's saying that inflation, you know, is something that, um, you know, American families just have to bear. Mm-hmm. Oh, really? Well, all right. I'll say it again. Fuck you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well said. That will conclude the week in doom. That was suitably doomy, I would say. Yeah. I think that worked. We're going to move into the main segment of our show. We're going to have a bit of a longer episode today because the note that Chris sent me was very rich, and I want to make sure that we get to a lot of these points. For longtime listeners of the show, you know that we don't rush through anything and that it takes the time that it takes. So just to let you know, we're not changing that now. We're, we're going to take our time, and wherever the conversation goes, it goes. But as I said previously, this note is very rich, and I want to turn it over to Chris to start with because I think that he has a good spot to pick up from where we left off, particularly, if you'll remember, in that tension between shamanic language, uh, which he writes is the language of dream, vision, eternity, and cultural centeredness, with uh, public social language, which he writes deals with intention, status, relation, and trade right so i think that those two distinctions of the way that language developed the two uses for language and perhaps the predominance of one version of language over the other in our current uh, discursive practices might be a clue to some of the some of the doom that we're experiencing now so with that i'll turn it over to you chris and we can let her rip because any direction we go with using this note as a guide, I think is is worth our listeners' time. All right. Well, thank you, David. You know, what we've been involved with from the start is this concept of the ghost radio signal, an inhabiting sense of where human culture started. Because our, our premise is that humanity is dependent upon the idea of culture. That we didn't invent culture. Somehow culture invented us. Culture with a capital C. And I think that that really does have resonance for for everyone. No matter if you studied anthropology or cultural psychology or sociology or whatever. I think the idea that, that somehow humanity was invented rather than we somehow collectively and creatively forged that as as a kind of artifact like a stone axe or a venus sculpture you know we did all that we did we did in fact do all that we made beautiful cave paintings uh, that i think are still better than any art that's ever been done I think that we, we don't have the, the recording industry to remember what the music would have been like. 
But I, I do think that's an interesting angle, is that our ability to record music is very, very new. Think of all the music that we lost. Think of that. You know, think of all the great culture in terms of made things that our ancestors have been involved in. And it, it's humbling to my view. But I, I think that what we're, the place that we're in right now is a conflict between the dim memories and support for that great inspirational energy of the past, the shamanic language of dream, vision, eternity, and cultural centeredness versus a very marketplace, 7-Eleven, public social language of intention, relation, status, trade, the world of competition and collaboration, adulation, and constant possible shame. Mm -hmm. You know, this is a feature of our social media landscape today. And I, I, I thought of... Um, David's always got me thinking, you know, he, he, he thinks that I get him thinking, and I'm really grateful for that, but he gets me thinking. And he, he got me looking into an old notebook of mine, and I, I just opened a page at random, and I, I saw this in my uh, own handwriting, and I really recommend handwriting because it kind of startles you, you know, with your own identity, you know, and we're, we're always about identity politics today, you know. Well, there's nothing more identifying than your own handwriting. And I saw this line. Something invisible has invaded the space station. You know, okay, that's a science fiction premise, I suppose. But really, isn't that the big picture of what's happened to this planet? Something invisible mm -hmm. has invaded the planet. And my, my suggestion is that, that, that something invisible is language. And, and for good and for, for great ill. And I, I also, also suggest that anything for good is also for, for great ill, always. Mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. I think we find that true in our relationships and our art, any aspect of life. And I, I think that what we have here is something that introduced a fundamental clash between the individual intimate. I love that word intimate. You know, when I think of sexuality, I think of being intimate with a woman. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. You know, that's my goal. It's not really, I, I don't know, orgasm is not my goal. Intimacy is. Um, and I think intimacy on any level of, of life is very hard to find. And when we do find it, it could be swimming with a giant sea turtle mm -hmm. as i've i've experienced um i mean i can't imagine anything more intimate than letting a giant sea turtle tow me back to shore i mean i, I just simply can't imagine anything more intimate than that i think intimacy is is a is the great life value in, in certainly in my life and i think that we have seen recently Fairly recently, I think between uh, 2012 and now, a complete collapse of the possibility 
of, of intimacy and, and also just social discourse. You notice all these moments on, on CNN CNN's great for this. Mm-hmm. They're 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 going bankrupt. They've they've actually three of my good friends have left them on ethical reasons, and two were fired because they're going bankrupt. Hopeless network. You know the destruction of balance from the conversations we need to have to the conversations we can never have. Mm-hmm. Because you'll be bombarded with hate and tweets and just nonsense. So that's kind of my initial foray into this, David. And I'd like to hear your response to that. I've kind of laid out a few things in terms, you know, also that big sea turtle, you know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So basically, so when, so this this idea of the the inability to express yourself right because you'll get caught in these traps and end up in you know constant uh wars with you know people with shovels and pitchforks uh trying trying to kill you would you say as as far as the as the language goes of that i mean the the thought here is that basically we've we've gone into a space of 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 the latter part of of this language right we haven't we've we've lost this ability to um you know every time here's something kind of interesting every time i think about this i be i get at a loss for words which is somewhat funny considering what we're talking about but i start i start to get visual impressions once i tried to talk about the other side of the of the language thing and this the sea turtle really kind of works because when I think of a sea turtle, I think of something that is floating in, uh, not open space, that's the wrong word for it, but you know, it's in, it's in the ocean, right? And it's sort of doing its own thing and moving around and not overly concerned with the particulars of anything unless, uh, you know, unless it's giving birth or something like that. And that's, that's kind of what this sort of language that we're talking about really is. And so it just it just makes me think, you know, like getting caught in these discursive traps has a lot to do with this this focus on uh, this second kind of language, this organizing languages, this professional managerial language. That's fair to say, right? You know, your phrase discursive traps is uh, something that uh, I can tell you, because mm-hmm. uh, I've lived a lot longer than, than you have. Uh, th- that's a hard thing to find in people. You could look your whole life. You could go to Hong Kong. You can go to uh, Buenos Aires. You can uh, go to Harvard. You can go to uh, Stanford. You can go a lot of places. And you wouldn't find anyone who would use that phrase, and I think that's very interesting. You know uh, that that that's a fluency of mind. Uh, what Sherlock Holmes, by you know through Arthur Conan Doyle, would say a subtlety of mind that is very hard to find. It's kind of a sea turtle uh, presentation in the world of like, well. Yeah, I'm 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 big and I'm ugly, but I'm I'm swimming and I'm completely self-sufficient, and I'm free of discursive traps. Um, 
And I think that's really interesting that, that you always sort of bring to the fore, you know, some thoughts and some phrasings. Um, you know, phrasings are so important. I was, I was walking out in front of the uh, El Cortez Hotel, which is one of the iconic hotels in, in Vegas. And I maybe mentioned this, I don't know. Um, but Frank Sinatra was singing Anything Goes, you know, and the phrasing was just so beautiful. And I thought, you know, phrasing is, is something musical, it's something conceptual, it's something intellectual, it's something deep. And if people don't have the ability to get with that, well, then they really, you know, they are just looking at pictures of, of giant sea turtles. They're not really seeing how that creature balances in the water. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they're not really engaging with life, you know, mm -hmm. and, and engaging with life is the whole deal. So I think that what you're saying is, 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 is really important. It's, it's about... Well, it, it fits our, our, our program of, you know, the whole deal here is performance. Mm -hmm. Whether we like it or not, you know, it, it just, it, you know, some people shy away from this. But, you know, Gus is, is doing a performance. You know, he's falling off the bed or he's wriggling or he's getting attention or he's not getting attention. You know, Rios is a performance. You're a performance. I'm a performance. Everyone is a performance in the world. And we may or may not, you know, get the attention that we want. We may or may not get the engagement that we seek. But nevertheless, performance remains the idea, the, the, the fundamental verb form of life. Mm -hmm. It is the fundamental verb form of life. And it's also something that i think um is what a shaman is doing all the time it's it's a constant performance of so we get into maybe a bit of murky territory here because we start using words like like individual right so the the, the shaman is somebody who is involved in this in this performance at all time and i think i think that the shaman would be the character on the space station who is is the only one who realizes something invisible has entered the the, the space station, right? Um, right. And I think that uh, you know when we say individuality, we're not talking about this sort of prepackaged individuality that is meant to divide people or you know keep them in consumer boxes so that they can keep uh, keep buying things uh, at an inflated rate. Now, by the way, um, but I think that. Uh, you have a phrase here, you know, spectacle over mythos and the social over biological and the movement from conversations we need to have to conversations that we can't have. And I think that those dichotomies are very important to keep in mind when we're talking about the sea turtle and the shaman, uh, this idea of the spectacle. If you think of the spectacle of, of uh, you know, TV or, um, you know, reality television is the first thing that comes to mind, right? Versus this concept of mythos. When you look at the sea turtle, the mythos behind that, right? We live on Turtle Island. Uh, th th right. there's, there's a whole sort of fractal mythos that moves from that one creature moving in, in the ocean, right? Speci so 
when we get to this idea of the conversations that we need to have, I think that the, the it's it's again that go, doubles back to the idea of the person or the shaman in this case who is aware that something invisible has entered the space station and he need we need to talk about some things. We need to talk about this invisible thing that's among us right now, right? And the rest of the people on the space station are con- are all concerned about like what what we can't have. First, we can't have conversations that deal with these topics because it'll make people too upset, right? You can't have a Donnie Brook on a space station. That that won't work. There's things that, nap- that there's knobs that have to be twisted. There's you know uh, there's planets that need to be explored, but the the whole idea is that you have to you have to get rid of all that. You have to stop protecting everybody's uh, prefab individuality so that you can actually have the shamanistic engagement with this invisible force and and engage in those conversations that we need to have. I think that's beautifully said, and I, I, I really think that you've gotten to the heart of the issue that, you know, in, in the promotion of individuality in the sense of a corporate commercial message of build your own burger, you know, Coca-Cola is for you, you know, customize your telephone plan. What we've really lost is the essence of eccentricity, you know, and, and real individuality. And if we can really get back with that, as opposed to this pathetic, sheeple sort of uh, group identity politics model that we're on about now, we, you know, we still might have a civilization. What about that idea? Mm. What about that idea? What if it's not over yet? Mm. What if we actually could rise to the level of a true civilization? You know, it's not over yet. You know, it's just in the hands of some people, corporate and political and Twitter, you know, idiots. Uh, that are are really destabilizing a, a, a possible vision, and I liken it to like, you know, you to see someone shoot a homemade arrow, a black palm wood arrow that they made in real time in front of you, to see it fly through the air. You know, there are all sorts of things destabilizing the possibility of that arrow. I mean, the feathering was, was improvised. It was made in real time, you know, it wasn't manufactured. But what about all the forces that might encourage that arrow to, to target? You know, we don't think of that. We always want to think about the things that destabilize individuality and eccentricity and idiosyncrasy. And we do that in the name of identity politics you know it's ridiculous it's a ridiculous program it's a ridiculous formula that is going to kill us all i think so and i think that i found uh this picture today that exemplifies what we're talking about and so this picture is it's well it's not a picture as a matter of fact it's a kind of nondescript painting colors uh nothing really interesting going on it's a bit pastel and the words on this meme say this Your life has purpose. Your story is important. Your dreams count. Your voice 
matters. You were born to make an impact. So first of all, none of that is true. Absolutely none of that is true. Um, secondly, I think that this is this meme gets to the heart of what identity politics is, is actually trying to do to the individual, right? They're trying to take away any kind of connection that this person might have, shamanistic, you know, sort of run-of-the-mill religious nature, uh, whatever it is. They're trying to sever that and make you the main character not just of your life, but of other people's lives as well. And that's where the real trick comes in. Because of course, we are all the main characters of our own lives, because that's how we're currently seeing this whole creation. But the insidious thing that this thing does, and it's what I think identity politics does too, is that it doesn't just make you the main character of your story. As I said before, it makes you the person who's going to change the world. And there's a little bit of, what is the word that I'm looking for? Not Maybe it is Tai Chi. Is Tai Chi the one that's about uh, energy place? It's like jujitsu, right? You ever see a little jujitsu guy who can take down a big person because they understand momentum? Um, basically, the the way that we're supposed to look at things is that instead of running up against somebody who weighs 100 pounds more than you and tackling them and attempting to wrestle them to the ground, you instead understand the physics and you actually, by pulling back, you're able to pull this bigger person into you and actually get them into a hold that you can eventually, if you wanted to, choke them until they passed out. Now that's a bit of a violent metaphor for what I'm talking about, but what we're trying to do is we're trying to take language and we're trying to pull the energy that is all around us and that's coming at us constantly and use that momentum to sometimes by doing nothing at all to actually really connect so you again you get to these funny places where you know it's do by not doing and engage by not engaging um but I think that I, for one, am really tired of beating my head against the wall and trying to, to, to fight people all the time. It's time for a little creative, creative combat might be a way to look at it. Well, I, I, I think with the meme example that you offered, I mean, I, I, I think there's room to move and and I think it addresses people for whom there is no room to move. I mean, my first thought is that that, that kind of sloganeering is aimed at people who, for starters, haven't seen their genitals in several years and are consumed with a diet of pure crap. And, and I think that extends beyond physical food diet to uh, cultural intellectual diet and I think intellectual would be just simply uh, enormously uh, <laughs> well beyond what they're capable of uh, I mean I, I think that that's just a you know really uh, there there are so many people who you wonder honestly walking around how do 
they manage to find their private parts, how clean are their business parts, as in, you know, you know, yeah, I, I think people know what I'm talking about. I, I think there are an enormous number of people who uh, are simply not meeting that standard. And I think that social media has given them a voice. You know, we all want people to have a voice. Well, I not, why? Why do we want that? Who, 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 who said that? I mean, we want, we, do we want to hand out megaphones to everyone? I mean, that sounds like a lot of chaos and cacophony to me. I, I don't know why that idea is embraced by the liberal left. I, I think that's a very well, be, weird because idea. Because they know, sorry to interject here, but because they know that that is the way to keep everybody exactly where they are. It's the crabs in a bucket metaphor. Just, you know, the signal to noise ratio. I was thinking about this today because I was going back and reading... Um, Giordano Bruno's stuff because I'm fascinated with memory still and improving my memory and as a matter of fact I have this idea for this sci-fi book called The Now and it's a murder mystery set in a world in the very near future where people are confined to pods and they have to eat bugs and the government tells them to stay inside all the time and so these people are extremely bored and the way that a lot of people decide to cope with that boredom is by taking a pill every night that erases their memory of what they did the day before. So everybody begins to live in this constant now. And this guy, the, our hero, is one of these bug people in, in a pod who actually decides that something funny is going on. So he decides to stop taking the medicine and attempting uh, you know, to wade through all of this noise that's in his world just to, to start to piece together what happens to him during a week, right? Um, so basically this whole idea of signal versus noise is huge and this giving everybody a voice and you matter and you have purpose. Um, it's true in so far that you have purpose to those around you, but what the liberal establishment is trying to do with that is to make people think like, you know, you have a purpose that's, that's bigger, than your neighborhood bigger than the embarrassing rituals that your parents forced you to sit through when you were a child um that's the insidious part it's supposed to make that that noise don't you think you know i just work on the basis of you know it, it's always been hard to have a clean butthole you know <laughs> I think that's something that is, is we work on individually throughout our entire life. It's a major turning point in our young lives when we're able to, um, I mean, Gus is just getting started. I remember the first time I ever went to a men's room completely alone. And I, I waded into this, this giant porcelain urinal that seemed about five times my size. I thought I was walking through a waterfall into the, the elephant graveyard yeah. of the Phantom con Comics, right. you know? I, I didn't know I was going to come out. And I, of course, came out wet. And, uh, That's hilarious. This one big guy... You know, looked at me and just said, all right. He said, listen, here's what we're going to do. Mm -hmm. And he actually picked me up 
I'm like three years old, four, you know, and he picked me up and he held me under the hand fan to dry my pants out. Mm-hmm. So I didn't, because I didn't piss my pants. I just waded in this goddamn giant urinal, you know, and it was my first time alone, right. you know, and it was like, you know, a, it was kind of a big deal. But all of these things are big deals. Having a clean butthole is a, it, it remains a big deal. I mean, how do these homeless people cope? You know, it's just like being able to shower yourself, bathe yourself, clean yourself, you know, apologize for your body odors and, and the problems that you create in the world just by walking around. I mean, we forget about all this, you know, it's just like, yeah. well, yeah. It's, you where, know, the, if you can have uh, it's sh- where the short end of the stick phrase comes from. Exactly, it does. Mm-hmm. Exactly, it does. And and so we've got to be really conscious that, you know, this is the unifying factor. So when you earlier mentioned in my note, you know, the social over the biological, I think that's really important. I think that we're in a position now where we say a kind of quasi-psychological thing of like, well, I feel like I'm this, but I'm really this. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's a problem with that. And, and I think that people are aware of this problem. And I think that, that a lot of the, the shit that's going down right at the moment, despite the powerful lobbying effort of the trans lobby, for instance. I mean, I have 10 signatures from students, trans students in my past, who are still part of my whole community. And they hate, they absolutely hate and refute what the trans lobby is doing about the notion of sociality and psychology over biology. They don't agree with that at all. And I support them. I mean, I think that what we all want to do is support really cool individuals and family and our own sense of community and not be bullied into just accepting, you know, completely anonymous strangers that we don't agree with. I mean, I, I, you know... I don't believe in kindness, as as our Seattle segments have talked about. You know, I really don't. But I contribute to a lot of good causes. I'm committed to now nearly 200 former students. Uh, I'm a good neighbor. Uh, I, I, I want to make my humanity count. I don't want to put up a fucking sign in front of my door. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, I knew a guy who used to really want to fuck people in the nose. Um, his name was Peter. <laughs> there you go. And <laughs> and Peter was crazy, man. He once ripped his uh, his sack open on a barbed wire fence, jumping over it too fast. Um, and he was a very religious person who would often quote Bible passages to me as we'd walk around the neighborhood in the aqueducts. And one time Peter uh, choked me out because I was suggesting that God might not exist. So you, you have a guy who's ripped his sack open uh, with one of his testicles dangling out, had to be surgically put back in. He choked me out and he has a sexual fetish for people's nostrils. And you know what we used to say? Peter's a weird guy, man. He's weird. You're raising the bar every second. Yeah, we, we, we used to say, <coughs> excuse me, we used to say Peter's a weird guy. Uh, we, really? We don't, we, we, don't, uh, we don't understand what Peter's all about, but he's okay. 
He's an okay guy. I don't understand why that can't be a metric that is applied to everybody in all of their weirdness. Now think about if Peter had said no. I need political power based on my my desire to have sex with people's nostrils. Right? I need to be taken seriously as a person who's had his testicles ripped from his body. Um, at that point, I think we would have liked him less. We liked him because he was a fucking weirdo. Do you see the point I'm trying to make here? I do, David, but I, 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 my, uh, my personal attorney is also calling through, and I may have to take that call. Yep. Uh, I, I, I'm not sure. Yes, I. No, I'm just joking. But, uh, look, I, uh, you know, I, I, I think that uh, what you're saying is, uh, well, it's it's just fucking weird. <laughs> It is. It is. Well, with that, would you, let's. That was a good middle segment. There, we gave it a little bit more time than normal. Um, how, we want to just structure this in the typical way: M- creative challenge, uh, practical tip, and then dream. Does that sound good to you? Yeah, and I'll just run through a couple of, of reading references that that have been on our our. They they've been on our board for a long time, and I and I think our readers know know these people, but. Uh, Guy Debord, The Society of the, Spe- of the Spectacle. I'm pitching on a new uh, cover design idea. I'm also a, a designer and visual artist, so I'm pitching on a new uh, issue of that. Rene Girard, Violence in the Sacred. David and I do a dance around this great thinker. He was based at Stanford for a long time, obviously a major French thinker. Um, it's a great book. It's a great book. It's a Johns Hopkins University Press book originally. It's a great book. Buckminster Fuller's Collected Writings. Joseph Chilton Pierce, The Crack in the Cosmic Egg. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. What more do you want mm-hmm. from, mm-hmm. you know, anyone? And also Walker Percy's Lost in the Cosmos. And I do want to pursue with David and, and with our, re- you know, our listeners, I do want to pursue why there aren't more female authors in this larger humanist category. I think uh, our, our, our great hero, Camille, mm-hmm. I assume people know who I'm referring to, uh, is, is someone who has really carried the torch. Uh, but I am concerned about why, in my life, there aren't more female intellectuals um, that I'm looking to, and I'm honestly open. I mean, I, I, you know, let's not just you know dump a lot of shit on me for for not listening, you know, uh, because I'm I'm a pretty good listener. I've got a parabolic ear in terms of publishing. I, no one has more access to what is being published than I do, and I'm just I'm saying that I don't feel there is this larger humanist connection that I remember and I see still coming out of the 60s and 70s. Terence McKenna, John Lilly, so many giant people. Um, And I I, I really do wonder about this. And I I wonder if we can't get some more female involvement about maybe helping us steer, you know, through things. I, I don't believe, for my interests, 
that a purely feminist perspective, an attack on the so-called patriarchy, that's not really sufficient. We need something broader. Uh, it, really, it really does require a broader and more inclusive, and that is one of the key words of our time, inclusivity. So I'm, I'm, I'm throwing that out. But I'm, I'm, um, I want to just introduce, before I get to my practical tip, when we're going to have David's response to his imaginative challenge, I want to throw out an interesting quote from Andy Warhol, who is someone I've, I go backwards and forwards across my life, and I hope you do too. I think that he's an interesting artist that deserves constant reassessment and interrogation, and I think that's the great challenge of an artist. So in that sense, I, I give him that respect. But he said this in his own magazine interview, People want to feel attractive and cool even when there's no reason or set of standards that would make that possible. And he included himself in this line. I want you to think about that. I think that's an interesting take on the revised notion of the rock and roll era of modernity. People want to feel attractive and cool even when there's no reason or set of standards that would make that possible. Andy Warhol said that of himself. Excellent. Very cool. Well, I've been giving this mental challenge some thought. The idea is that some sort of alien pulse hits the earth and raises everybody's intelligence by 25 IQ points as we understand them. So first of all, as a humorous aside, that would put a lot of people at about, what, 105, 110, maybe? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. That's a good, that's a good starting point. Uh, you covered your ass there. That's good. But for the rest of us, right, for the rest of us, that would put us at a, at a pretty decently high level. <laughs> a pretty, pretty high level. So what would happen? What would occur? This is going to be broad strokes. Yeah, that's that's cool. That's what we're asking. So yeah. there is a meme to start off with, and it's called the midwit meme. And what it is is a bell curve, <laughs> and this bell curve uh, has has two people on on either end of it, right? So on the far left end of the bell curve, there is a mentally retarded person, right? And on the other end of the bell curve, there is a wise sage. And in the middle of the bell curve, there is someone who looks kind of like a nerd. These would be the people who I would say are like the I fucking love science type people, right? And the point of the midwit meme is that you take any current debate, right? <laughs> any current debate and the the retarded person and the very wise sage person always say the exact same thing right but the midwit in the middle usually has a long and dense paragraph about uh why the other two on the other ends of the bell curve are wrong okay does that make sense yes it does okay so what this gotcha, what this midwit meme is saying is that when you get past a certain point, you 
you horseshoe back to simplicity. And it reminds me of the mathematician Alexander Grothendieck. Are you familiar with this with this guy? Yeah. yeah. Oh wow, you you God, you So God, go for so it. So Grothendieck was uh, famous in his time in the sixties for essentially reinventing algebraic geometry which many people thought couldn't be done. And he did this by apparently eliminating a lot of unnecessary hypotheses in, in, the, uh, in the practice of algebraic geometry. I'm not a mathematician, but you, you, sort of, you ask anybody who's anybody in this field, and they will put him up there as quite possibly the most genius mathematician of the 20th century. Now, in the early 1990s, 1991 to be exact, Grothendieck disappeared. Uh, his writings became sort of cryptic and arcane. He found God and disappeared to uh, the Pyrenees. I'm pronouncing that right, right? It's the Pyrenees? Yeah. In, yeah. in France. Um, so I know all of this. Yeah. yeah, I know all of this because I recently watched a documentary uh, that was done in the. Uh, well, he died in 2014. This documentary would have been 2005 or six, and it's you know it's it's mathematicians on the hunt for this guy, right? Uh, and as they're going along, they're they're finding a lot of private collections at universities, uh, some of these esoteric writings that he's that I think have still to this day never really been published. Uh, it, it's all this very kind of bizarre, schizophrenic seeming, at least writing uh, from this hermit. Who, who exited from society. And so that is a real-life example of somebody who, who, who is the, the guy on the far right of that bell curve, right? He's moved back to simplicity, back to religion, back to, um, you know, the sort of esoteric teachings of, you know, the mystics, right? And mystics in general are very often highly, highly, highly intelligent people who have gone through their dark night of the soul, who have kind of rejected religion and God and come back out on the other end. You see this time and time and time again. So I think that when people got this IQ boost, right, I think that they would, first of all, they'd, they would move closer to a, a sort of spirituality or religion. They would begin to sense that something invisible has entered the space station. They would understand time, right? They would begin to understand this concept of deep time, not the day-to-day, minute-to-minute thing that we find ourselves in now, but they would begin to remember things that they had eaten uh, five or six days ago, right? They would become better at things like risk assessment. They would know whether or not it was worth it to embark on a certain uh, task because, again, they would have this concept of time. They would have this concept not just of the, the week's time or the year's time or the decade's time, but of, again, deep time, of the fact that they're a node on, 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 a, on a big matrix, right, of, of things that are going on both in this plane horizontally but also vertically, right? So sure, we'd get innovation, right? And sure, we would get, uh, you know, maybe people would, I don't know, consume less like this Bloomberg article wants us to. Or maybe they would just find more uh, environmentally friendly ways of consuming. But I really think that people would start to get a sense of the transcendental, 
with this intelligence. And that sense of the transcendental and the shamanic, I think, would begin to lead to smaller communities, decentralized, that utilize technology that we have today to, to build small lives that maybe collectively, a la the, the beehive or the ant farm, might have a few things to present to culture at large that that can advance us as a species. But I think they would understand this concept that we've been talking about throughout the show, the need to retreat into ourselves and, and our smaller communities to give up uh, petty squabbling and midwittery and, you know, arguing semantics and, and, you know, little tiny points that don't matter. And, and they'd get back in touch with God or the universe or however you want to talk about it. And they would uh, overall live, dare I say, happy lives. Hmm. Well, I you know far out. I, I hope uh, people listening um, can appreciate sort of what we're trying to build here. You know, I, um, I've actually known a lot of really smart people in my life. Um, thankfully, I'm very grateful for that. And uh, David is uh, one of the smartest people I've met. And he, you know, has the benefit of being my, my business partner. And we're, we're trying to grow something that that we don't really have an idea of, you know, we can't draw the shape of the thing we're trying to build. You know, we're trying to build a kind of space station organism. And, um, and we are draftspeople, you know, we, we do believe in drawing and, and, and having models, but it's not necessarily something so easy to, to really capture in the moment. We, we kind of want to let it explore. And one of the things that David is doing with engagement with these imaginative challenges of mine, which come from my textbook and, and the sequel, which I do have ready. Uh, he, he said, I don't know if you could have a sequel. I do have one ready for more popular um, consumption. But I think that the idea is that, you know, once challenged, uh, minds grow. You know, and, and we need to, as friends and as spouses and partners, to challenge each other to, to grow. Uh, because intellectual growth is also magical and spiritual growth. It just is essentially the same thing. And those people who don't believe in that, well, I don't know. My view is that I, I need to move to another trailer park, yep. you know, because... You know, really, if, if you don't go with that idea, then I'm not sure anything I say makes any sense. So very, very well done. I think there's some interesting ideas there. And it, um, it leads into a nice uh, thing of, of, of this week's practical tip, which I, you know, I, I'm very proud of trying to give practical information. You know, the big ideas are great ideas. They're always great ideas if they're really big ideas. But sometimes we need some simple things to, to really connect the dots and, and build some, some possibilities for the future. So are we ready for this week's practical tip? Yeah, let's go. Okay. Well, anyone who's ever been involved in the recording industry in the old days when there was tape 
would be familiar with the, the strange magic of backward sound. And it's been a big part of the recording industry and popular music mythology, back masking, things played mm -hmm. back to front, David Lynch's films. Uh, well, I want to say that I think that listening to language backwards is, is really a very cool and instructive idea. And there is a cool program, the Say It Backwards app. You can download it very instantly. You can record into it. It, it is, you know, it's kind of like the old chipmunks things of, of just, you know, hearing your, your voice in a different octave. But hearing things backwards offers a magical and yet strangely mundane new perspective on the shape and sound of language. I want to really harp on that. Often associated with dreams and, you know, uh, peculiar David Lynch moments in film. You know, the backward speaking ability is fundamental to the entire idea of sound recording. Think about the, the, the visual, film, analog, but also the rise of the popular music industry. But I would suggest to you that if you record and listen listen it's hard to learn how to listen you have to be a solomon islander really to to really get that but if you start to become a solomon islander in your heart to listen to backward speech it opens up new channels of perception and a kind of an oblique angle of appreciation and deconstruction of the fundamentally linear nature of language mm -hmm. I, I really encourage you to just have some fun with this basic app. I, I'm not an app person. You know, David will tell you, I, you know, I resist apps unless they're, like, I identify this bug or mm -hmm. uh, where does this woman live or, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but I think this is a really cool app. The Say It Backwards app, it's available from Google. It gives you a new perspective on language, and it gives you a new perspective on not just language, but your voice. We all, you know, writers always talk about your voice, you know, having a voice, you know. Well, you do actually have a voice, and you should get more acquainted with it, and you should be aware of what it can do and what it can't mm -hmm. do. So that's my practical tip. Say it backwards, listen to your voice, record, hear language, not just hear language, but hear your language mm. from a different perspective. Excellent. I love it. All right. So now we're ready for the dreams, huh? I'm ready for the dream. Okay, well, this, uh, this week, you know, it's a little bit... Uh, uh, volatile. So there are a few movements across, and I think the more important is you know issue here is is key images. There was a moment where I was uh, invited to this upcoming uh, friends giving. You know, mm. you can't say Thanksgiving; you got to say friends giving. Mm. But I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for that. But in the middle of the table was a perfectly symmetrical roast turkey 
but it was bright blue. It was bright blue, mm. which was a disturbing image for me. I think that is, I think that, you know, we accept that primary colors, I love primary colors. Primary colors defy analysis. Mm. You know, Schopenhauer said that, uh, and it's true. Uh, but they, the, the point of primary colors is they're capable of enormous divergences. And there are shades of blue that are really, really off-putting. And this was one. Okay, so that was my big, bright blue turkey. Like a 16-pound turkey shaded a blue that was psychologically disturbing. Then I found myself in a room with a misbehaving cuckoo clock, okay? Like two figures would come out, male and female, and they'd start humping or start doing weird things. It was very odd. And I, cuckoo clocks are one of my personal strange things. I, I don't understand the Swiss obsession with cuckoo clocks. Uh, I, I find that anything to do with them just puts me off in a weird way. But then it put me off so much, I went outside. I went outside. And I saw little people. Can we just go back to calling them dwarves and midgets, please? Mm -hmm. The magical words for them. They're not little. Little people is so... It's like blue fluid, you know, on a tampon. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just like terrible. They're dwarves and midgets. Mm -hmm. But they were rock climbing up a straight, really intricate red rock face. And there are at least 50 of them. And it was fabulous. And I was just, I was enjoying that. But then here's the ticker. I, uh, I broke from that dream to a, a really... Uh, signature new vegas suburb mm -hmm. there are some that have these alarmingly emotive calls to action in the street names like ambition and fortitude can you imagine raising a a young child at the corner of ambition and fortitude <laughs> yeah. you know that's yeah. like it's a little bit weird. Meanwhile, just across one major parkway are streets with names like Magnesium and Cobalt. That's kind of you know? cool. So you get two. Yeah, see, I'd rather live on that side. You know, I don't want to live on the corner of Ambition and Fortitude. I want to live on the corner of Magnesium and Cobalt. Sulfur. But anyway, you know, I was wandering down this street, and these are streets that I've often thought of. These are real streets. I've often thought, you know, you could have a, a very, very old man with uh, a green balloon walking and you'd have an instant surreal sort of David Lynch scene, mm -hmm. you know. You don't have to do anything because everything is so Kafka and weird. But I met this homeless guy because that's not what you're supposed to find in that neighborhood. And uh, he was lugging along a, a very strange uh, shopping trolley full of stuff. And this is, I think, a tribute to how dreams, which is what we connect with, with the unspeakable visions of the individual, how they connect with language and story, image and, and words. 
And he said to me this, and I recovered this upon waking. Not easily done. This was done straight to a tape recorder upon waking. He said to me, there's a giant at the end of the boulevard eating miniature English bulldogs like candy. You know, and it's that kind of behavior on my part that that really had an impact on two marriages because I'd wake up in the middle of the night or 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 even, you know, at, at you know, a reasonable time like six o'clock and I'd start talking into a tape recorder and, you know, they'd go, well, what are you doing? And I'd say, well, I'm trying to recover a lost world. Mm-hmm. So hmm. there you go. Excellent. That's awesome. Well, on that note, thanks everybody for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. Um, do tell your friends about our little mystery school that we have going here. I encourage people, by the way, something Chris said a bit earlier about the mental challenges and making sure that we challenge our friends. Uh, I would encourage you, if you have the time, to go back and listen to some of the earlier episodes of No Country and see if there is a noticeable difference in the way that I talk because I think that there that there is and this by the way is not meant to just be a tooting of my own horn uh it's meant to demonstrate something that I think this podcast can do for you if you follow along with what we're doing here so that's just a a thought for the week something you can do if you want to but on that note We will uh, sign off here, and uh, yeah, thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks, everyone. Take care.